to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today, here to speak with me about John 8, is Connor Habib. Welcome, Connor. Hi there. Thanks so much for joining me. This is, um, this is your first time on the show, obviously, and um, I'm very, very uh, lucky to have you, and I'm so happy that we made the, the connection. And you um, have recently done some episodes on your podcast, Against Everyone with Connor Habib, um, about esoteric Christianity and suggested a passage that I was actually a little misguided in my guess uh, about what you wanted to talk about <laughs> in this passage. So before we get into esoteric Christianity, um, the Gnostic Gospels, etc., cetera, and, um, and this part of scripture, why don't we talk a little bit about you? Uh, can you tell folks a little bit about your background and how faith plays a part in your life? Sure. Um, I mean, first to say I was raised with no religion um, and no religious tradition. My father is a Syrian immigrant um, from the mountains, essentially, <laughs> in Syria, very um, rural. And uh, so his his religious upbringing was a combination of Christianity and some nomadic people's beliefs. And then my mother was raised by religious fundamentalists, um, and so rejected religion. And then my father basically had no, no equivalent religion when he came to the U.S. And so, um, I was raised sort of with nothing, you know, I mean, I grew up in a very Christian heavy area in Pennsylvania, but for some reason, even though that that was true, I was always just found myself very, very drawn to God and to Christianity in particular, but you know, whatever you sort of wind your way through a lot of things before you realize, oh, that actually that Christianity thing was <laughs> what I was looking for and what I needed. Um, it wasn't really until I would say maybe 2000 and gosh, I don't know, it, early to mid 2000s that I started investing more and more time um, in sort of practice and study and contemplation. And that was after, uh, encountering, yeah, esoteric Christianity. I was, I was in grad school. Gosh, this is going to take one second here, but I think it, uh, <laughs> it'll be a very different story than a lot of your other guests. So let's see <laughs> how it goes. Um, I was in, I was in grad school, um, for creative writing and also organismic and evolutionary biology. And I was studying, the latter with a very famous scientist um, named Lynn Margulies. And she, um, so Lynn developed the Gaia theory with James Lovelock and discovered, or I would say proved that um, all that like nucleated cells or cells with organelles are um, symbioses of different types of bacteria. And so, So Lynn would take me to these like science conferences and I mean, I kind of had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I'm not a scientist exactly, although I got a great science education from Lynn and there was this table there for this place that was doing something called Gertian science. And I had no idea what that was. And they were, and the people who were, had that table were offering a three month program. 
um, in Gertian science. So I was in grad school for two things. I was teaching in Western Massachusetts and there was this weird Gertian science program for three months, every day for three months. And Lynn said, you have to go to this. And um, I was like, what the hell are you talking about? She said, no, you have to go. So I listened to her and I went. And um, I didn't realize then that Gertian science has had this huge, that Goethe has had a huge influence um, on esoteric Christianity. And I found myself living across the street from a Waldorf school and living next to a biodynamic farm and learning about esoteric Christianity, particularly through Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy. Um, and then I started reading about it and learning more about it. And that's when everything started to sort of open up for me. And I began to develop a more realized uh, relationship with Christ. I mean, everybody has that relationship anyway. But um, when I started sort of turning towards it, you know, um, inwardly in a real attentive way. And things have just gotten weirder and weirder since then. <laughs> <laughs> I always admire folks that, um, especially, I think there's a lot of people that come onto this podcast who have a background in Christianity and have kind of um, strayed away from faith and and have come back to it later in life. That's my story and the story of a lot of people that have been on the show. I think it's partially because a lot of us are, you know, uh, part of the uh, sort of the trans community where it seems like a lot of people kind of get spurned very early on and, and, um, and, and, and being queer or trans and young is obviously like a recipe in the American Christian church for, for being being um, kind of shit on in a number of ways. And, and so a lot of people um, have had to negotiate their faith on their own terms after having suffered what would be spiritual abuse or, or just sort of negative um, experiences in the church. I, I really am fascinated by folks that come to this kind of on their own and, and haven't had this, um, this negative feedback that they've had to kind of battle against and have been able to navigate. And I find that those are, those are the sorts of people that tend to dig a little deeper when you, when you, um, the born again Christian uh, trope is a large swath of, of Christianity in America, right? They're people who are, um, you know, baptized into a usually non-denominational uh, Christian church and, and then, you know, are champions of their faith, but they usually do it in a very orthodox, very um, surface kind of level. They don't dig in, they don't ask questions, they're not encouraged to ask questions, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but it is always super interesting when I see someone who has not just, um, you know, experienced uh, uh experienced a connection with Christ and that, that Christ has become part of their life, but they just, they want to go deeper. They want to dive further in. And, uh, and that's very, very cool. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. You use the phrase esoteric Christianity. I think there's a lot of people that listen to this show, um, be they Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant or whatever, that kind of have no idea what esoteric Christianity is or what that phrase means. I know that it is a broad uh, subject. It's not something that you're going to be able to sum up in a few minutes or even a few hours from the lectures that I've been listening to about it. But <laughs> what, um, if there was a way to um, sort of broadly zoom out and say, this is the um, this is the the idea of esoteric Christianity beyond what traditional or orthodox Christianity is. Can you kind of sum that up for folks? Hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's <laughs> no, but here we go. Um, <laughs> um, 
Look, I mean, as 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 with any Christianity, there are lots of different versions of esoteric Christianity. Right? We can point to Anthroposophy and Rudolf Steiner, and point to Doskalos, um, the Cypriot uh, healer and teacher, Peter Deneuve, uh, who formed the unfortunately named White Brotherhood, um, <laughs> or uh, Rahari traditions of Christian faith healing in Pennsylvania. There are lots of different, um, and, and, and European countries, there are lots of different versions of it. So, you know, and, and probably I would say a lot of people listening probably don't know any of those, you know, or maybe have heard of Rudolf Steiner, but like maybe not have heard the others. And I think it makes it difficult to say what esoteric Christianity is because the contents can seem so different. But I think that one thing that all of those have in common is the idea that um, the development, spiritual development is different than self-development. Um, although they go hand in hand. I mean, they, they, they walk together as companions, but that spiritual development renders uh, experiences of uh, the presence of Christ and the um, spiritual world that uh, begin to sort of shift your view of the real in general. And, um, and And I think it's that experiential factor that really makes things a bit different because there are people who have worked in and developed these spiritual paths uh, for a long, long time, and and based on the work of others, that I think um, I think it's really that it's this sort of meditative and developmental pathway, and maybe that doesn't sound like esoteric to some people. Maybe that sounds. Um, just, well, yeah, sure. I mean, there's like St. Ignatius and there's other people who have done like spiritual um, development path stuff, but the kinds of stuff that begins to happen <laughs> when you do this, it, it makes the world extremely weird. Um, <laughs> and, you know, some people use the term occult Christianity. I like that term too, but obviously that has such a negative connotation that, um, esoteric, I think is, works a little bit better. But there's also one other thing I would say, which is that there's so much emphasis on the individual when it comes to esoteric Christianity. Um, and not in some capitalist shallow sense of, you know, consumerism or, you know, I want this because that's just me or any of that kind of stuff, but just the respect and love, um, that is, that is revealed through each individual's relationship to Christ, which cannot necessarily be contained by uh, other religious uh, other religious paths. There are esoteric versions of almost all religions, um, and I think that you know if you sort of go digging into your religious tradition, you can find the esoteric version of it. Because mm-hmm. um, you'll find some person, like in the Catholic Church, Valentin Tomberg, who actually used to be an anthroposophist and follower of Rudolf Steiner, but he developed all this mm-hmm. esoteric uh, work after converting to Catholicism. Um, so, you know, there's anywhere you want to look, you can find it. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people who um, are totally unfamiliar with the idea hear um, 
terms like esoteric Christianity, occult Christianity, especially occult Christianity, that kind of like raises alarm bells in people's heads, or mm-hmm. Gnostic Christianity, which is another sort of like f- loosely tied in. These these streams kind of cross paths quite a bit with respect to um, you know scholars and writers um, about these topics. Um, a lot of folks see it at odds with traditional Christianity. Now, obviously, traditional Christianity is a really convoluted notion, right? There is not really a traditional Christianity. Mm. In, in many ways, Gnostic Christianity or or esoteric Christianity is one of the earliest forms of Christianity. This is something that dates back to the earliest days of the church. Um, it does, however, challenge some of the preconceived notions that we as modern Christians have today with regards to accepted books of the Bible, um, you know, what scripture mm. is saying and how it's saying it and what the end result of those uh, messages that we're supposed to be taking out of the accepted canonical Bible are. And um, and so people, I think, in that camp see esoteric Christianity at odds with traditional Christianity or Orthodox Christianity. I think esoteric Christians, based on the speed run of uh, classes <laughs> that I've been <laughs> listening to and, and trying to learn about uh, in preparation for this episode, esoteric Christianity, um, Christians seem to see uh, it as a further level deeper, like you said, digging in, you know, further down the rabbit hole of what would be sort of the surface level, what um, esoterics refer to as exoteric Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. The church at its, um, at its like, its outward looking uh, and, and most surface level notions of Christianity is the exoteric and the esoteric are the secret messages, the secret lessons um, that one can use to connect further with the Christ, you know, the being of Christianity, Christianity um, in relation to the Christ, not necessarily in relation to Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. And um, it's a really fascinating subject. I'm so glad that we have the opportunity to talk about this. I, I'm uh, lately have been kind of fascinated with the idea of traditional Christianity because we um we take it for granted, especially in the American church today, that th- these are the tenets of the Christian church. This is what Christians believe, and it's what Christians must believe in order for you to be a true Christian. Well, that's been up for debate for thou- literally thousands of years at this point. Um, we have gone back and forth on doctrine. We've gone back and forth on dogma. We've gone back and forth on um, rules and ideas and guidelines. And we've gone back and forth on scripture, uh, what books are to be accepted into the canon and what books aren't to be accepted into the canon. Um, I think what really, really fascinates me about esoteric Christianity is its focus on each person um, purifying themselves. There was a really, a really, really great lecture series that you can find. Um, I found it on Apple Podcast. It's under the title Gnostic Teachings. Uh, by the Glorian podcast, and it's um, it is a series of six episodes or lectures on esoteric Christianity. The the one that I'm on right now is the final one, uh, being born again, and it's this notion of born again in the sense of esotericism versus in the sense of a traditional Christianity. And that is a fascinating, fascinating topic. So if anyone's interested, there are even uh, slide PDFs that you can download to follow along with these with these series. But there was a concept that was brought up in this in this lecture series about these paths that one must take in order to d- dive deeper into knowing Christ, um, and that is the way of Peter, and then the bridge of Judas, and the way of John. And John is like this sort of elevated 
understanding, um, knowing the word. Uh, first, you must sort of do the ground level work, and then you must sort of purify yourself. And they call that the bridge of Judas or the path of Judas, which sounds weird, right? Why would anyone want to be like Judas? Well, Judas died. Uh, by by uh, confronting the Judas within yourself, you allow that ego to die within yourself. And then you can truly understand the messages that are being conveyed by Jesus in scripture, be it canonical or otherwise. Um, but anyway, this, uh, again, I asked for a very brief description, and I'm sorry that was totally unfair and not something that you could. <laughs> no, you know, what? can I can I just respond to some of the things that you've said though? Yeah, of course, of like, course. Because you, you brought up so much that I think there's so much there. So one, I want to say that there are Gnostic cosmologies that uh, that find themselves in agreement with what I would call esoteric Christianity, and ones that don't. So. Um, like Gnosticism isn't all one thing either, just for people that are unfamiliar with it. And I'm sure that you sort of found some of that stuff as you were looking in. Um, just to the point you just said about the groundwork and whatever, one of the, you know, one thing that Rudolf Schneider says is, you know, for, for every step you take in occult knowledge or esoteric knowledge, take three to refining your personality. Hmm. Like, you know, don't mess around with this stuff, like without purifying the vessel, you know, um, when, when, <laughs> I mean, one of the things about, uh, <laughs> one of the ways you could look at Christianity, cause you were, you were talking about how esoteric Christianity wants to go that sort of step deeper or whatever. One of the ways you could say that is that religious fundamentalists just aren't fundamentalist enough, um, is one of the ways I would say it. Like they want to interpret the Bible literally is what people always talk about, but like they actually aren't interpreting it literally at like very, I mean, they're really not, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's this weird melange of like metaphors and sort of like clumsy, blunt, you know, um, understanding of what's being read. And, and what we would say from an esoteric Christian standpoint is actually what is really meant if we take in the encounter with Christ, like, and we take in the encounter with all the heavenly beings that are presented, would you, would a fundamentalist who really believed in things literally really live their lives the way that they live, but just maybe go to an anti-gay rally every once in a while? It makes no sense. <laughs> like if you see, if you see like, <laughs> I don't know, if you see a ghost for, for crying out loud, much less an angel or really identify the reality of the spiritual world. And you really want to take that in as a fundamental of what is real. It should at least begin to change your heart and your being completely. It wouldn't lead you to make your spirituality an accoutrement to the violence and the views that you already had, but rather it would start to open each aspect of your heart, of your feeling, of your thinking, and of your actions. And so the undeniable reality, the real fundamental of Christianity becomes revealed through practice and engagement and true revelation. And, um, you know, I mean, I think 
it's like, that's not, that by the way, isn't to say that people who aren't into esoteric Christianity aren't quote unquote real Christians. Like really when it comes down to it, the, the essence of it is just like any other Christianity, which is about, it's about freedom and compassion and, and love. However, we would maybe just seek to understand what those three things are. Um, what is it really? What is love really? What is freedom really? What is compassion really? And then something starts to open up. And like I said, things get weird from there. Yeah. Um, the uh, Maybe the first thing that I, I just wanted to maybe try to pick apart a little bit about what you responded with there was um, a purification of, of self. Um, you, you know, from what I gleaned in what I was reading about and listening to, the purification has to do with sort of um, the death of the ego, which is a vaguely kind of an Eastern idea. And um, we see this crop up in other, in other faiths, not just in Christianity. But what else is involved in the purification of self? Is it simply becoming more loving, uh, understanding your place, you know, in the cosmic uh, order of things, um, or is it becoming closer to Christ or becoming one with the Christ in your purification? Like what, what would purification specifically as a term, like, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So I think purification is a good word, but just so nobody's misled by that, um, I'm just going to say refinement because purification can sound a little like, mm, like too pure, like I would say. So like, you know, but but I understand what you mean. Um, mm, mm, talk about water purification sounds like a little better than like, you know, a burning away of things, although mm-hmm. that can be part of it too. But, um, you know, as far as the ego, it's, it, there's a, there's a real reverence for the ego, but it's not, it's not the false ego. It's not the double of the ego or the, the, the ego's sort of doppelganger. Um, what we want is to actually get in touch with what the ego really is. Um, and I'm not going to get into that, but what I will say is that, you know, this process of refinement, um, there's a lot to it. I mean, yes, a lot of it just has to do with reflecting on Christ and working to be more like Christ. But a big, a big part of that is not denying anybody their freedom. And by that, I mean, we encourage people to see on their own, um, not to try to bludgeon them with information. This is really, really hard to do. It sounds like I'm advocating for some sort of spiritual libertarianism, but what I really mean is um, we greet people and meet them where they're at. We listen. Um, listening is also another skill that is extremely difficult. Uh, you know, listening is not just, you know, you almost always what happens when people are talking and you and I are doing it right now, even though I think we're having a good conversation, but there's a different task to spiritual listening, which is like becoming a negative you know, having this negative capability where I'm not just responding to the thoughts I have after you speak. I'm actually responding to what is being presented to me. Um, So usually someone says something, we have a thought about it and respond to the thought. Um, So real listening is something different. Um, Becoming a hollow in the hills, someone says. Um, And even, even the universe has a a quality like that. The sun is a negative space and is through that virtue by which it shines. Um, a love is issued by becoming empty for the other to 
you know, meet us in. Um, it's also, uh, eventually, and these are even harder thinking with intention, feeling with purity and acting with purposefulness. Most of our thoughts are non-intentional. Most of our, well, most of our thinking is not intentional. Thinking is, most of our thoughts, most of our feelings are not purified. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of our actions are not purposeful. Almost everything is running on automatic. And we can take that from, yes, Eastern religion, um, some forms of Eastern religion, or we can take that from psychoanalysis. We can take that from a lot of different places, but, you know, beyond free will, there's not much free thought or free feeling either. And so we work to create all of those um, in ourselves. So anyway, um, (laughs) that's a long-winded answer to your question. And probably people are maybe a little frustrated that I'm not giving more specifics. I mean, we could go over some spiritual exercises if you want, but everybody will find the right sort of place to start if they want. And I I wanted this to be... um I come from a very specific sort of background within my own faith and one that's still very new. You know, I was really only uh, born again uh, two years ago or so, three years ago, and and it didn't, um, it wasn't really a part of my life after childhood for a very, very long time. So I'm still growing and learning. And I think a lot of people who um, came to faith, especially around this time of the pandemic, when we all started spending a lot of time by ourselves and sort of contemplating meaning in the world and contemplating the uh, the world beyond and not just the material level, but but deeper than that. Um, I, the more I learn about Christianity and different varieties of Christianity, the more fascinated I am by it. And I don't want this show to ever just be like a one note song. You know, I really want so many people, we've had, you know, Catholic priests on the show. We've had all kinds of different people uh, who have come to talk about, you know, how they have embraced Christ, however that has, you know, whatever that is or however that looks like to them. Um, you used a phrase like Christ when you were just talking to, and I think I used it earlier on. And there was one thing that kind of popped up to me in um, in uh, in reading and learning about esoteric Christianity, about this notion of the Christ versus Jesus the man. And it seems to me like uh, esoteric Christianity elevates even further than I would say traditional Christianity does the idea of the Christ, the the, um, the existence of the Christ, the the element of the Christ as the the mystic God creature, rather than Jesus the man being the Christ, specifically Jesus tied to the idea of Christ. I don't know if I'm describing this well enough, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> the um, Christianity today is weighed entirely on the man of Jesus and his time in the world and how we use the man of Jesus to see the Christ. But Christianity, by necessity, doesn't need to be that way. It's Christianity, not Jesus-ianity. Do you think that there is a different way that esoterics see the Christ versus Jesus as opposed to traditional Christians today? (laughs) Uh, there's a big difference. Um, (laughs) and you know, we'll get really like go to cloud cuckoo land if we start going there. Um, you know, there's, you know, first of all, the idea that there are two Jesus children, um, and this, you know, (laughs) this is part, partially what, 
um, accounts for some of the discrepancies between the gospels, um, that there are two Jesus children and that one of them, uh, it's like they were co-holding the Christ, um, being, and that, that one of them sort of gave up the, the sort of part of Christ that he was co-holding to, uh, allow the other one to hold it fully because the children couldn't sort of hold it together the same way. So there's that. Um, I don't, I don't have a direct experience of that. That's just information to me. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, I mean, I, I don't have one thing to say about that here or there, but it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think, yes, Christ as a being though, this is the thing that's so important that Christ is, <laughs> Christ is a being whose presence affected the entire earth. So you don't have to be quote unquote Christian to experience the benefit and the love and the presence of Christ in your life. And I think that that's huge, you know, in its implications for especially people that are locked into a version of Christianity that makes them think that everybody has to say Christ in a certain way. Esoteric Christianity does not, it's it's not up for that. What it says is like, look, all religions are very different and they're all pathways to different spiritual beings. Um, the presence of Christ affects all of us. So you can be these other religions and you'll still have a relationship with Christ. It doesn't really matter. It's just a fact. You know, one one of the things that I say about this, or maybe this will help explain, you know, I went to an Irish funeral not too long ago, and it was very loving. I'd never been to a funeral in Ireland before. It was very loving. Catholic, obviously. Um, And, uh, you know, the priest, just sort of working out of his own tradition, kept sort of saying these things that were like, Lord, may you, you know, Christ, may you receive her with open arms. May you this with open arms. May the, you know, like may this person go to heaven in this way. Blah, blah blah. And I just remember thinking, okay, he's not doing anything bad, like intentionally or whatever. But he's making it seem as if the church and he are the ones doing this. But actually, the presence of Christ, um, in the kingdom of death and in everybody's life, is just a spiritual fact. Nobody does it. It's already happened to and for everybody. And so, yes, the way we live matters and the way that we encounter and engage with the spiritual world matters. But the Christ is a principle, a principle of the cosmos, almost one would say, a law, a a law. You know, nobody who's here does not have a relationship with Christ. Mm. And... That doesn't mean we have to do things directly in a Christian way um, to experience Christ's presence. And so I would say that that's the big sort of lesson. And and usually when people talk about that in sort of mainstream Christianity, you know, what they mean is like, well, there's no hell and there's no, and, and everybody's forgiven and everything's, you know, in some ways everything's kind of okay. I'm not saying any of that. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly how I feel about hell, but I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying like, it does matter how we live because there's a purpose to being on earth as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a purpose for us being here according to esoteric Christianity. It's just that the Christ presence in our life is already a given. Hmm. That's beautiful. And it's, and it's decentralizing. 
Um, mm-hmm. I keep using this phrase, traditional Christianity, and I, I keep kind of kicking myself when I use it because when we think, <laughs> it's the only word that I can usually, that I can really think of to yeah. describe what I'm talking about and how most people in the West, I think, would view the Christian church today, be it Protestant or Catholic. Um, David Bentley Hart's new book, uh, Tradition and Apocalypse, does a really, really great job of explaining the uh, sort of origins of how we understand tradition in Christianity. And he, he doesn't necessarily argue against it as a notion of, you know, following classic beliefs or, um, you know, uh, understanding theology from the from the onset of Christianity. But he does say that the way that the church came together is not um, an accident uh, and not in not an accident as in it's been divinely mandated from start to finish. It has been a power play in many ways to build a church that was stable. Uh, to build a church that inherently had some exclusionary uh, notion to it. And, and so I think that the Christianity that we have today as sort of the, the, the dominant strain of it is built on uh, beliefs that have been built over time to maintain, uh, construct and maintain a stable power structure for the Christian church. Uh, opening up the the being of the Christ to people who don't even necessarily uh, know Jesus, know the story of Jesus, who haven't read the Bible, who don't know the Gospels, who don't understand, opening up the power of like the light of Christ to others is destabilizing. It's decentralizing, and it, and I think in in many ways that's why so many people who are part of this quote unquote traditional Christianity see um, esoteric belief. In, in a skeptical way because it is, well, they're not part of my club, so they don't get to be you know blessed by Christ in the way that I am. And mm-hmm. I don't think that there's really anything scripturally, be it in canonical scripture or otherwise, that inherently says that. Obviously, there's a few lines here and there that you could pull one verse way out of context and uh, and say, okay, well, here it is. He says, and you know, if you don't go through me, you won't, you won't know the Father. But there's a lot of ways to read that sort of thing. Right. And what are, what are people who are pulling on that one? How do they even understand that line? It's so <laughs> funny to me. It's like, uh, really? Like what that you have this one very constricted idea of what that might mean. What do just describe what the father means to you? Mm. Um, you know, what, what, when it means to get to him, what does that <laughs> even mean to you? You know, um, it's a secret handshake, obviously. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, exactly. My dad, you know. But I think, like, um, you know, I think that there's, you know, I hope not to, like, sound rude when I say this, but a lot of mainstream Christianity, and particularly Catholicism, exists in the form it exists in now, specifically for the purpose of blocking access to spiritual truth. Mm. And I don't mean that in a conspiratorial way. Like, okay, yes, there probably is this, you know, conspiracy aspect to it, but, and there may also be this aspect um, that you're talking about with this author. I haven't read his book, but in tradition apocalypse, like that it was formulated in a very specific way, but actually there's this really positive side to all of this because all the forces that have, driven us into materialism and blocked off access, those are for us as well. That's all for us because what happens is that we are then asked to dissolve materialism out of our own intention. Again, thinking intentionally, feeling with purity and acting with purpose. It's not given to us. 
And that not given to is the thing that matters in our moment. Not given to you, but rather what was once given to you must emerge from you now. You've got to do it. And I think that this is so beautiful um, because what it's saying is, you know, out of your own freedom, you must come to Christ. And and in, in that sense, also out of your own freedom, like you now offer your freedom up to Christ because that's what you've done. You've given your freedom over to Christ. You've given your freedom over to God, which is one of the only things that we have to actually give. And so if not the only thing to offer God, I mean, God is God. What you know, so It's one of the only <laughs> things we have to offer. And so I think that um, a lot has happened not just the formation of the church, but a lot in culture, economics, and politics in general has happened over the centuries to deepen our commitment to and experience of materialism. And this is esoteric Christianity, whichever version of it you want to take up, primary sort of aim is to help us dissolve our experience of materiality and to instead see things quote unquote, see things with spiritual eyes and to experience the world in its spiritual form and reality. You mentioned um, needing to shed the material. Uh, earlier on, I think you referred to uh, some some practices of Christianity as being like an accoutrement to our existing life in capital material, capitalist material society. Um, that you know that we're living in, uh, in 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 America, it's like super highlighted and, and blown up and turned up to eleven, and absolutely uh, unavoidable in many ways. Um, it is so easy. Uh, this is less of a question and more of just a response. It is so easy, I think, in um, in practicing Christianity. In you, you use mainstream. I'm going to use mainstream going forward because I think that is okay. a lot <laughs> a lot better of a phrase than traditional. But in mainstream Christianity, it is easy to maintain a life that is very materialistic, um, that is uh, that is very um, routine. And make make your faith just a um, a part of going through the motions of your life. Uh, that it is just something else you add on to a life that uh, you think is good enough. And uh, you know you've read read the Bible once or twice, and you, you think you got the really important stuff down. And so I go to church and and I sing the songs right, and and um, you know I volunteer, and so that's it. That's all I really need to do. And. Uh, I love this notion of needing to go deeper, um, not necessarily just um, going deeper within the doctrines of the church that you are a part of, but going deeper within yourself, finding the oneness with Christ that we all have the capacity of as spiritual beings, and uh, and and really yeah, shedding that material layer and uh, and understanding that there is. Um, when, when really knowing Christ, Christ being the light of the world, Christ being this purifying light of love and welcoming and acceptance, that the closer we can become to that, we don't just improve ourselves as individuals, which is like a great side effect, I guess, but we can actually, um, we can actually bring others closer into Christ as well, simply by, um, by being... Uh, an avatar of that light, uh, a version of that, um, a, a version of that love that we see through Christ. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I love that. I mean, I love that you say it that way because, I mean, I think we, when we, <laughs> there's there's all this tension between like, uh, do I work on myself? Do I work on the world or whatever? And you really have to do both, mm-hmm. of course. But um, when it comes to what's happening in us, because the spiritual world is real, then our thoughts and our feelings matter. <laughs> they are as important as objects. And this is something that, as someone who has mostly leftist sympathies, well, I don't have any right sympathies, um, <laughs> but I, but I, when I say mostly leftist sympathies, there may be a few things. Uh, uh, well, actually, I'll just talk about them right now. Like, you know, leftist, leftist politics are really about material conditions and it is important to work on the on the ground and those are the real words emergencies but when we let go of the fact that our thoughts are as real as objects and that doesn't mean a new age thing that doesn't mean well when i think things they just come you know into being that's it's not that simple but because we, we can end up neglecting our thoughts and our feelings. And that world really is important. It really does uh, matter because it's the world from which all other worlds spring. <laughs> I mean, if, if I ask you what material conditions are and you give me an answer, well, where's that answer coming from? It's coming from the standpoint of your consciousness mm-hmm. and your experience and your, and your concepts. And, you know, and the ideal world that you are working towards is a concept and the, you know, quality and the love and the, or, or the freedom that you offer are all coming from your concept. So these things really do matter and they matter in a really, in a really interconnected way. That's not just, well, if I think better thoughts, I'll be able to do better in the world. <laughs> so, you know, when it comes to say, um, like socialism or communism, I think, you know, we, we tend to sort of talk about spirituality as this enemy of capitalism, but we also have to sort of think, well, what then is the spiritual and Christian version of socialism and, and communism if the spiritual world is real, you know? And I think one of the things that I like to do, and I hope this all is connected to what you were just saying. Let's see where it is. It is, but it is. Like one of the things, okay. One of the things I like to do is just sort of look around the room and um, feel, you know, the connection to people's labor, right? So when I look at the walls, the bookshelves, the desk, um, the floor beneath me, the street outside, you know, all that kind of stuff, that's all brought to me by labor. And I begin to then enter into the great spiritual connectivity of socialism or what, you know, Billy Bragg calls the socialism of the heart in one of his great songs, um, Upfield, I think it's called. And, um, you know, and when I think about what communism is and I think about what happens to us when we die, I think about the true commons of the dead, the true commons that is offered to us when we're all interconnected in a spiritual way without materiality. So I think, you know, when we start looking into the spiritual importance of what we do, we don't just sort of 
clarify the enemy, but we clarify the friend as well. And we can begin to understand more deeply the kinds of actions we're taking on the material world by relating to Christ and the non-material presence of, of all, we, all we do and think of and feel. Hmm. The thoughts that we have, while they, um, they aren't always spoken out loud, don't exist um, simply here, you know, as spiritual beings, being all interconnected, um, they, they affect how we talk. They affect how we act, even if we don't express them, right? So they, um, you know, it's sometimes saying shedding the material or shedding the material world, like you're saying, is it, it's easier said than done, obviously, but it's also like maybe not exactly what we're talking about because there is in our lives as humans, no way to entirely shed it. Um, people have to live, uh, make a living for themselves. People have to have a place to live. People have to have a place to rest their head and sleep, you know? And, uh, and so in, um, in understanding the power that we have uh, when we can embrace love and embrace light and um, come closer to Christ, uh, the power that we have to improve the material world is actually a great thing. You know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to think about. It's just, um, it when you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, saying, yeah, we don't want to be material, but we can't not be in, in many, many ways. Right. Mm. Yeah. I mean, and let me just be clear real quickly. Like I'm not saying that we are ridding ourselves of concepts of economics or politics or the need for somebody to lay their head down, as you say. So I'm glad you're saying this because I'm realizing that maybe some of the way I'm speaking about things is not totally clear either. I, What I mean is once we have a spiritual, a truly spiritual and non-materialist conception of the world, we can actually finally approach what those material conditions are with clarity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like until then, like we're kind of hopeless. Um, you know, it's, there's, there's this, uh, yeah, there's, a, there's this kind of political assumption that if we just got all the material conditions, right, everything would be fine, <laughs> but it's not so yeah. <laughs> right. And so how do we actually approach? And so what I mean is once you start having certain kinds of spiritual development experiences, and that starts transforming how you view and experience the material world. Um, then a different kind of help becomes available to others. And it, of course, always includes um, working towards ending suffering in the physical world. Um, but it but it might have different pathways and different sort of understandings and reasons to how that should happen or take place. And I ultimately, of course, think that it's more effective, you know, uh, in, in the end. It's a, it's a holistic approach to a surface pro a surface level problem, not holistic, like nat- naturopathic medicine, holistic, but, um, mm. in purifying our spiritual, not pure. What was the word we used before? Instead of refining, refining, there we go. Refining <laughs> much better in refining our spiritual selves and understanding the ramifications of our um, of the power that we have as spiritual beings, we can materially change, but by only fixing the material things that we see wrong, that does not fix the source, the root of those issues, which is usually spiritual. 
um, being mm-hmm. the bed, you know, on which everything else is laid. Um, you know, I don't want to forsake material sacraments. Um, someone who is baptized in a in a giant wash tub in a parking lot and um, you know feels truly moved and feels truly closer to Christ through that process of being born again in whatever way that they see that um, happening through that physical ritual, that is an important thing to their spirit. That's an important thing to their soul. Mm-hmm. And it makes them feel whole and it makes them feel um, better and closer to Christ. That's that's great. Um, you know, regardless of what your thoughts on um, on communion are and, and you know, Catholic or, or, or otherwise, that ritual can make you feel closer to God. And in that way, that's an important material thing that can happen in this world, physical thing that can happen in this world. But it all services the more central uh, focal point of, of what our practice, our prayer should be focused on, which is mm-hmm. the spiritual, which is the soul. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that you're bringing that up. But when the, when the, when baptism happens and I wasn't baptized, right? So I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm talking out of just sort of an observation here, but when, when someone's baptized, yeah, there's, there is a spiritual, uh, encounter with the spiritual elements of the ritual, and the spiritual elements of the ritual aren't available to most people without materiality right now. It would be great if they were, <laughs> but they're not. <laughs> um, water has meaning for people. Blessing has meaning for people. Immersion has meaning for people. And it's that meaning that is not accessible without the portal of the illusory material of the ritual. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's like, it does something to us. I mean, look, it's like the Bible is like, <laughs> like, uh, uh, you do this all the time on the show, or at least you've done it a few times. It's like, here's the problem part of the Bible, right? The Bible <laughs> has all sorts of things that we don't want to be there too. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet it's a pathway, you know, some of the spiritual figures that I talk about a lot have things that people would say, well, that's a problem that so-and-so said this or that. And I'm sure we could lay that at the feet of any religion or, you know, religious thinker or spiritual text. But it's what what is this open in you to be able to enter into and stand in the being of Christ or or find yourself in relationships with Christ. That's that's what matters. And to the extent that these things actually block or obfuscate that pathway, then we need to talk about it. But when we see the sincere and true opening happening, and unfortunately, that's not up for anyone to determine except for the person who's actually gone through it and and Christ in the heavenly hierarchies, then... Um, then that that redeems whatever it might be that was the problem in the first place. Hmm. You know, that's almost the um, you know, the inherent issue with reading the Bible literally is that um, in taking your specific translation or your <laughs> specific language and um, reading reading the scriptures, the holy scriptures 
and, and saying, well, this is what it says and therefore this exact word must be exactly how we can read it. We can let that stand in the way of knowing God better. And I know that's a confusing concept for people, especially those who grew up in the Christian church, because, well, we've been told this is the word of God. This is, uh, what is, uh, what does Joel Austin always say? It is what I, what it says I am. And I, anyway, this, um, (laughs) this idea can actually separate us from God. If we get so obsessed with reading the Bible, literally, and this is something that I've tried, you know, as much as possible to open up interpretations of scripture, to allow us to say, well, here's where this makes me uncomfortable. Here's where I don't really see this driving with other portions of the Bible. Now, one thing that, um, one thing that I, I really loved about the, um, the lectures that I w- was listening to about uh, esoteric understanding is that you can read the Bible and go, well, that contradicts this, and this contradicts that, and this contradicts that. And it, it allows you to say, well, either I don't understand it, it's God's knowledge, I will never understand it, and I just have to take it at face value, or some will take it and go, this doesn't make any sense, let's throw this book out the window and go to the next one. And neither of those need to be your reaction. You can take this in stride. Understand that this book was constructed by a very specific group of people over a very specific period of time. It has been uh, retranslated and retranslated by um, many groups of people with many different messages that they are trying to portray. And, uh, And rather than allow one interpretation or one phrase or one word or one sentence to say, either A, this doesn't make sense, Jesus must be a sham, I don't get this, uh, or B, I'm too stupid to understand it, I'll never really get it, I just have to to devote myself entirely to an uncritical, uh, non-analytical reading of Scripture entirely and just read it exactly how I see it in this particular book. You know, either one of those things is very problematic. You can allow challenges in Scripture to bring you closer to Christ and saying, you know, rather than saying, God, I don't get this. Um, I'm just going to believe what it says in this translation, and you can kind of take the wheel. You can actually say, God, um, bring this knowledge into me in a way that this book is not sufficiently doing. Help me understand this message in a way that the Bible, in my translation, in my language, cannot speak to me. Uh, You know, it is... um, it's really challenging, though, because so many people are just trained. We, we, we don't want to think critically about a lot of things, especially established things, especially things that, like faith, many people, like me, I, I, I find my faith to be extremely comforting in times of difficulty. So when I do pull on a thread, there's a danger of, of saying, this thing that I found solace in, this thing that I found comfort in, I can no longer <laughs> find solace and comfort in anymore because I'm, I'm questioning it. And, and, you know, that's a real problem. But it, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, um, it's good that you bring all this. I mean, look, what there's a way in which it can be said that the Bible isn't the best book for explaining Christianity. <laughs> um, it, not because there's some other book, although there are good books, but it, not some other book, but because our lives are the most important spiritual text we have. Mm. And the Bible is like a cosmic interlocutor into the text of our lives. It's the helper. Um, It helps us read the text of our own lives. Mm. And 
you know, anything can be used. I mean, that the, the, the adversarial forces are so crafty. They're as crafty as us because they in part come from us. <laughs> They're so crafty that anything can be used. The Bible, you know, certainly can be used against God. And um, I love... I love that holding the contradiction thing you're saying, that that tension. There's there's this sort of school of Hegelian theology that I think is really interesting when it comes to that, where we don't try to resolve the contradiction, but we actually experience the presence of God in the contradiction. And I, I, I really like that. But I also think like this this thing the Bible can be used against God through its contradictions, through the, the unknowingness, through whatever, even this thing, you know, that Christ says, or even the thing that said, you know, of, of Christ, you know, we're, you know, two or more gather in my name, I'll be there. Right. But we see that communities actually can be really terrible. Um, now that love in community can be really terrible. So this is very <laughs> tricky, yeah. you know, especially around like, you know, the harshest times of, um, of the global crisis that we've all endured, people form communities around ideologies and love each other in those communities. They truly love each other in those communities. But that love is used to insulate and ossify the borders of the community so that nobody else is allowed in or to speak or to have anything. And so... No blood is flowing anymore. Christ's blood cannot wash you if you're in a community surrounded by stone. If you, if no one else is allowed in, if there's no circulation, um, if there's no heart that's carrying our wound and fear and love and passion and compassion into the presence of others, but we only love in these insular ways, then even that gathering in the name of love can be used against God and it can be turned into, and maybe this is a bridge to the Bible passage, it can be turned into a stone that's cast at someone else. Our very love itself can be turned to bread alone, into stone and cast at another. Beautifully said and perfect to take us into the scripture that we were going to talk about today. Um, so uh, we are going to read uh, the the beginning of John chapter 8. And you'll see in, in most Bibles there will be a note that certainly says it large in the ESV. The earliest manuscripts do not include um, chapter 7 verses 53 through chapter 8 verse 11. And this is a story of Jesus essentially saving the life of a woman who's caught committing adultery. Um, I, when you suggested John 8, thought you meant different parts of this chapter because I was sort of going through the metaphysical uh, sort of wild notions and, and far-reaching philosophical and theological implications of this new school of thought that I was kind of trying to um, trying to acquaint myself with. But this is a very material story with uh, very real <laughs> implications that has a very few, it has a very few uh, odd little turns uh, in it. So uh, let's dive in. What is your preferred translation of the Bible? 
Okay, I don't have a preferred translation. Okay. And in fact, if I may be so bold, up on my screen right now, I have the King James Version. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so how dare... This is the most controversial thing I've said probably on the show so far. But I, I, I don't... It doesn't matter to me, to be quite honest. And it's mm. not... It's not that the words don't matter. They, of course, they do. Um, of course, the translation matters. But for my purposes and talking with you now, it doesn't really matter okay. that much. I don't think you know. So should we should we start um, just start at the at uh, at the beginning of this story here? I think my Bible actually cribs the end of seven into eight, so it'll start at seven yes. seven fifty three and go through. Uh, do, yeah, should I would we say just eight two? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Eight through eleven. Should I just read it all the way through, and then we can go back to the beginning? Yeah, to the end of eleven. It's great. Okay. Uh, the header in the ESV: the woman caught in adultery. It says they went to each. Uh, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This, is, uh, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That's some powerful forgiveness from our, from our guy, the Christ. Uh, I can understand why this might have been a controversial passage to add on or something that someone felt like they had to add a note to because it challenges an existing law. Not an existing law, I don't think that the Pharisees really cared about enforcing necessarily, but they were using this as like a gotcha moment. They were trying to catch Jesus in something blasphemous so that they could they could have more ammunition against him to to bring charges against him and, and eventually do what they succeeded in doing and and get him condemned to death. But um what what made you decide on this passage to to bring to the show? Well, I think first of all that um, my <laughs> first I was a little like, oh right, I have to talk about a passage uh, on the show. <laughs> so, um, but this one has something to do with some of my interests um, in esoteric Christianity. It's this little line: uh, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Jesus is not a writing person <laughs> in the Bible, right? Doesn't do a lot of writing, so, no. No. And so we might ask ourselves, what is being written or drawn? And this is a moment, and I think this even maybe more than the forgiveness is a, is is part of why this has been removed, is that it reveals the fact that Christ is changing the relationship between people 
by inscribing, literally, new laws into the earth that that a word of forgiveness is now imprinted that is allowed beyond law, beyond uh, beyond any sort of rule-based um, law that is based on laws of nature or concepts of how things are supposed to fit together in a symmetrical way. And instead now a strange, I would say, a, a strange kind of figure or sign is imprinted on the earth by Christ's finger that makes it possible now to withdraw from the law and instead go through the presence of Christ when anyone, including yourself, is encountered. And that is forgiveness. That is when we realize that forgiveness is one of the most powerful pathways to spiritual development, of spiritual development, to Christ, because it requires being in touch with this little figure drawn or written into the ground by Christ in this moment, that what we want to do is throw a stone at someone, and we do it all the time in tiny ways. But now available to us is the ability to stand back and say, no, there is something beyond the law of my compulsive feeling and my reactive actions and my automatic thoughts, which are not even my own, I now can stand in the word that Christ has drawn in the earth and say, you and I are connected. I am like you. And if I don't see that, I also cannot be saved and I also cannot be with Christ in this moment. I'm going to let that sink in for a second because what you just said was so powerful. And, and, and I think that the first time that I read this and, and the second time and the third time and probably the fifth time I read this, the image of Jesus writing in the ground, I was imagining as like just idle, like, I, I don't know, like a whistling something while you're working. You know, he was just like, oh, whatever, you know, he's drawing stick figures or he's playing hangman or something. Um, and... and <laughs> <laughs> in thinking deeper about it and understanding what a massive and important thing he's doing by um by by reacting to this situation in the way that he has the action of writing in the ground the action of what you said writing a new law into the earth uh is so important and it's not that that law that he writes into or whatever it is he's writing specifically into the dirt is going to stay there forever. It will wash away with the rain. It will be trampled on. Just like the laws were uh, that were handed down to Moses were trampled on and misused and distorted over time. He knows that this law that he introduces or this change that he uh, that he introduces 
into the minds of people and understanding our interconnectedness as human beings, our nature as people who have the capacity to sin and frequently do, and our nature as people who tend to judge other people even though we regularly sin and hurt others, that that rule is uh, is laid upon uh an existing understanding of what we believe to be right and wrong, not to necessarily say that the adultery is fine, we're cool with that now, but to say that we need to solidify a new uh, an, a new communal understanding of how we can exist on earth. Jesus said in another gospel, I've not come to, um, to change the law or abolish the law, I've come to, to see the law through to completion. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people take that phrase and say, oh, well, see, he believes everything that was written before, but he's going to, um, he's going to see them through to the end as we see the, the judgments in Revelation. But rather, I think he's honing it. He is editing it. He's doing a, um, some copywriting so that uh, some copy editing so that he can make the best form of this law that's possible. That is the completion of the law. That is the finishing of the law. Not to say we're just going to add on to it, but that we're going to perfect it in whatever way we can so that we as human beings can um, usher in the kingdom of God and and live in it in a way that is um, that is beneficial to all. Mm-hmm. I love I love this that you say, you know, it won't be there forever in the sense that what's happening here is a new word or even a new language, a new form is inscribed. And as you said, you know, a word traced into the ground can be trampled, um, stepped upon. It can be sort of kicked up into dust. And it is, you know, in all of us, we, we have to intentionally, do, we, we have to, out of our own freedom, grant forgiveness, which is so funny because, as I was saying before, it's like forgiveness is something that's already done. Everybody's already forgiven. <laughs> and we, we are all, we're all forgiven at any moment for every sin. But... <laughs> what's missing from that is not the forgiveness. It's the freedom to grant, it's it's granting forgiveness out of our own freedom. And again, offering the freedom up to God by saying, it's not my place to not forgive somebody. This is God's business. This is God and this person. And what I can do is recognize that. And when I recognize that, I see that there's nothing to forgive, so I've truly forgiven. And so that's a very complex word. That's a lot of things packed into a, something drawn into the ground by Christ's finger in this moment. But And so I think just to sort of bring this forward a little bit in our time, you know, all these all these laws, like we're saying the Bible or baptism or gathering, all these um, ways of being spiritual in the world and connecting to God and Christ in the world, they can all be intercepted and invaded by all the things that we do to sort of 
block them or cover them up. And they can even be inverted and, you know, messed with to lead us away, not just block, but lead us away. And so now something that's needed is a new kind of language or form brought to the earth, brought to the ground by our intention where Christ gave that to us. It is up to us now to create this new ability to connect. We have new challenges in front of us right now. We're in a new world. We have a lot happening. <laughs> Lots happened since Christ was here. <laughs> and, um, and so it can't just be the old words. It can't just be the old forms or the old ways of writing or speaking or even meeting. Something needs something absolutely new that comes from who we are now encountering Christ, it will emerge. But um, it'd be great if we could sort of usher that along and look at this moment, you know, and, and, and think on it. Mm-hmm. The, um, the forgiveness that we are all given um, through whatever your atonement theory is, we see Christ's presence and his death as Christians, you know, see that his existence here on earth in a human form and his death and resurrection as an example of the forgiveness, not just that we are extended as individuals who sin and have the capacity to hurt ourselves and hurt others and, and damage communities, but um, it is also an example of the capacity that we have as individuals, with as humans, with the capacity for God within us, with the with the Christ inside of us, to forgive others in the way that Christ did, and that's a word that it's great news for all of us. First of all, but it, it is a word that Jesus said over and over and over again. Um, you know, if if your brother wrongs you, rebuke but forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive, and it was seven or seventeen times. I can't remember. But that is a powerful truth that we should carry with us at all times because um, condemnation is extremely easy. It's very, very easy to take um, what we've learned and say, well, that's wrong. You're doing it wrong. Don't do that anymore. Or worse, that's wrong. You're doing it wrong. And therefore, you need to be punished. It is much, much more difficult to say, I see that you are, you know, that you have sinned, I forgive you in whatever way that I can, just like I've been forgiven in the many ways that I've been forgiven through the many things that I've done wrong myself. Ooh, yes. And I recognize that God has already forgiven you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what, how, how difficult, look, maybe we know what forgiveness is when we forgive someone that broke our heart or, Someone's just kind of shitty in a relationship with us, but what about like, oh, this one's really hard. You know, what about politicians? Um, <laughs> it's hard to even say. What about cops? What about, yeah. um, you know, the nights people go to bed hating Kamala Harris or Putin or whoever it is today, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever. Um what would it mean to forgive 
Or at least if he can't do that, because I, you know, when I see somebody brutalizing someone else, it's hard to access that. Um, now I think at this certain point in my spiritual development, I feel more sort of heartbroken for everybody than I do necessarily a sense of condemnation and anger. Although I do still feel that sometimes. What would it mean to just get in touch with a prayer that says, you know, um, you know, may we all recognize that we can, that we are forgiven at any moment and that we can forgive others at any moment, that we can be washed. I mean, think about, I think about this all the time um, in relation to the war that's happening in um, Russian Ukraine, Russian Ukraine right now. Like, I think about the people that are committing acts of war, whether they were the perpetrators or people have just sort of been pulled into it and how the only way to stop at any moment would be to know that you were forgiven. I mean, it, who, who's going to stop killing if they've already done it 10 times um, and they don't know that forgiveness is possible or accessible or that there is a spiritual realm? That's not going to be easy. The only way, the only other way it happens is someone orders them to stop, you know, and drives themselves into, it strategically drives themselves more deeply into materialism. You know, that's the only other way is by obeying some sort of authority that is not really God's either. So, but to see, <laughs> but to but we need to make that forgiveness available to everybody by constantly accessing it in our own being, by offering our freedom up to God in Christ and standing in Christ, standing in Christ. So there's Christ in us, but it's not really in us. It's like we access a part of us where we have sort of a pathway to Christ. And then we find we are standing within his light and then we forgive from there. And that is... When we stand within that being, nothing material can even touch or hurt us in any way. That's what he's the shield, you know? I mean, he, no, all threat and fear falls away because you're experiencing absolute love, compassion, sense of freedom, encouraging others, you know? So, huh. Yeah, forgiveness. Yeah, forgiveness. <laughs> the, the, root, <laughs> the root of forgiveness, though, is love. And I think that tapping into that and understanding that is our pathway forward as human beings to develop, cultivate uh, a world and um, a community of humans that does not rest entirely on um, in-groups and out-groups, exclusion and exclusion, that um, that love at the core of everything is what will allow us to behave in the way that not just makes us feel better about ourselves and our actions, but makes us capable of loving and forgiving people that do things that we can see or that we think are atrocious or um, unforgivable, that nothing truly is. Because love is the center of everything, because light is the center of everything. Forgiveness abounds to each and every one of us, and we need to be uh, we need to be beacons of that too. Yeah, and I'm I, I, yeah. I just want to add one more thing. Like I'm here because of forgiveness with you. Um, 
you know, he reached out to me because we both know um, two people who we were getting in fights online all the time. And then finally I just reached out to one of them. I was like, what the fuck? Can you just stop? Like, stop attacking me online. And immediately, and, and I was like, I think we have a lot in common, actually. And immediately they both were like, yeah, what are we doing? <sighs> and we just were kind of like, let's let's actually just be kind to each other and see what happens. And then a reaching out to each other happened constantly and very lovingly. And really, I, I cried a lot over their presence in my life. I've really learned a lot from that moment of forgiving and being forgiven. And that's why we met and I'm on this show talking about it. And mm. I mean, not that that's solving the problems of the war, but like, how are we ever going to get through that bigger stuff? If like we're agonizing over people saying some silly stuff to us online. I mean, how, <laughs> we pretend that we can solve all the political problems and then absolutely crumple once one person says, you know, the sort of wrong thing. And obviously I do think it's that all that matters too. All of it matters, mm. but like, can we get into this practice? You know? Yeah. It's, um, it's easy to feel put upon by the world when it feels like everything is coming down onto you that, um, you know, people are hurting you or you're being bullied or harassed or, <laughs> um, or, you know, that nothing seems right. So why, why the fuck should I care? You know, why the fuck should I change, you know, how, how I feel if everybody else is, is, um, is hurting me, why wouldn't I then hurt others or retaliate? Mm. And if we can, and it's very difficult to, because of, you know, human nature and because of who we are, I think in general, we have this reflexive physical reaction to say, you know, fuck you, buddy. But mm -hmm. if we can instead turn that into who are these people? Why are they doing what they're doing? Can mm -hmm. I understand that they are human beings too? Can I, can I acknowledge their humanity and their community with me and uh, find a way to love and forgive them, even through what I feel they've done to me and hurt me. Um, can can I muster this strength? And uh, it's like a hundred out of a hundred times when you do, the outcome <laughs> is positive. It's it's never. It's honestly, I can't think of a single scenario where I've mm -hmm. slowed down mm -hmm. and gone, okay, it's okay. <laughs> I love you. I forgive you. And you know the the outcome has always been. Beautiful conversations, beautiful friendships, love, and um, and harmony, and what what an un, what an unbelievable thing that is. I really, really love this conversation. Thank you so much for for talking with me today. Um, I hope somewhere down the line we can have the chance to to talk again. Um, before we go, do you have um, some plugs that you want to throw out there for people to to check you out? Yeah. Um, also, I just want to say I feel the same. I'm really, really happy to be here. It's not every day that someone whose Twitter name is Trans Regret Snoopy reaches out to you and uh, <laughs> says hello. So um, I'm glad that this is where everything went. Um, I And it's a pleasure to meet you and talk with you. Um, I, 
I have a podcast, obviously, against everyone with Connor and Beeb. There's been a series on esoteric Christianity lately. Um, so depending on when this goes up, that might still be underway or it might just be recent. But there are a bunch of episodes on it that you can listen to. Um, I have a novel coming out in uh, in July called Hawk Mountain. And uh, you can pre-order that on whatever site you want to pre-order it from. If you're in the U.S., it's um, available now. It's a kind of a, I don't know, what is it, psychological fiction, very Patricia Highsmithy. So if that kind of thing is interesting to you, there it is. And um, yeah, just that's all. I mean, I... I love hearing, I, I have a Patreon, which is probably one of the main things I should mention. Um, <laughs> just I'm terrible Patreon. at that. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. And, you know, whatever, you know, you want. I mean, if if this, if you, if you like this conversation, great. Just go check it out and see if that's something that you want to support. I would love that. And um, that's it. Just feel free to say hi to me on, on Twitter or whatever. I'd. I like hearing from people if it's in earnest and, um, and that's how this conversation started. Mm. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks again. And, and everyone definitely should check out that, uh, that series on esoteric Christianity at the very least to, to at least get a sense of what the podcast's all about. It's great. And that series was, um, really opening and very, very cool. So thanks again. This week's poem is an excerpt from the thunder perfect mind. Give heed then you hearers, and you also the angels, and those who have been sent, and you spirits who have arisen from the dead. For I am the one who alone exists, and I have no one who will judge me. For many are the pleasant forms which exist in numerous sins, the incontinencies and disgraceful passions and fleeting pleasures which men embrace until they become sober and go up to their resting place, and they will find me there and they will live, and they will not die again. Thanks, everybody. Oh,